In 2021, a graduate fellow at the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies named Decker Eveleth was poring over satellite imagery of the Chinese desert. Rumors were circulating amongst researchers that China was going to build multiple new missile silos, and Hans Christensen of the Federation of American Scientists had already noticed inflatable silo rings being transported from the Jilantai Training Center. But where were they going? Decker had a couple ideas. So I started going through all the most probable sites, in my opinion, um, where they would put a fleet like that. And after about, oh, two, three weeks searching through uh, near Mongol, I moved on to Gansu province. And it just turns out there's a really big site there uh, near a city called Yumen, where they have a series of sites that have the exact same inflatable covers that were present at Jilantai. One thing in particular tipped him off that these were silos. So one of the standard signatures we look for of a rocket force facility is a weather station. Um, all Chinese missile brigades have weather station attached to the brigade headquarters, um, and they're building a weather station at this facility that looks precisely like the same weather station we see at other rocket force facilities. After careful consideration, the James Martin Center went public with the news. The story landed on the front page of the Washington Post and caused a stir, to say the least. Matt Corda, who works with Hans Christensen at the Federation of American Scientists, began to study the UMEN missile silo field that Decker found in earnest. Analyzing that field, we you know, start to really understand what the shape of a silo field looks like, right? How far apart are the different, uh, the different air domes, right? Um, what's the pattern, right? What kinds of supporting infrastructure are we seeing? And then using that, you know, we have talked about it for a while. I made some hunches about where sort of thought that, that another field might be and looked around and, and found it. Matt's referring to the Hami missile silo field, which housed around 120 missile silos. Together, Matt and Decker helped find around 200 Chinese missile silos, an incredibly large discovery. Admiral Charles Richard, then commander of STRATCOM or the United States Strategic Command, was impressed. I usually have to pay someone to do that, he was quoted saying at a symposium in Alabama. If you enjoy looking at commercial satellite imagery or stuff in China, can I suggest you keep looking? He hardly has to suggest it. Open source intelligence, aka OSINT experts, are constantly filtering through a stream of information to pick out what's changing in nuclear arsenals. These experts make sure the public stays informed about the shadowy world of nuclear weapons. As the newest host of Nukes of Hazard, I set out to answer the question that people have been asking me since I joined the center. Well, how do you even know that? I sat down with the experts to tell you how people outside government intelligence organizations know that by utilizing open source intelligence and what's on the horizon for the open source intelligence field. I'm Farah Sande, Communications Associate at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and this is Nukes of Hazard. Let's start with the basics. Open source intelligence refers to collecting and analyzing data that is publicly available. That includes using satellite imagery from privately owned companies like Planet Labs, but that's not even the half of it, as Matt and Decker explain. We use intelligence estimates, we look at budgetary uh, documents and 
parade videos and local media, you know, news outlets, and a lot of what we use as well as commercially available satellite imagery. So we look at a variety of things. We look at patents, we look at civilian contracts, and, and these documents give us an idea of um, where units are based, what they're doing, and what the capabilities of those units might be. But it depends on where you are. I mean, for a country like North Korea, there's no civilian data coming out of North Korea. There's just, there's just not. Um, and so you have to rely on North Korean media and geospatial stuff, whereas in China you could rely on a much more broader um, range of sources. Useful data can be obtained in the strangest of places. Take, for instance, the Chinese Rocket Force's TV show. The People's Liberation Army Rocket Force put out a TV show about um, Rocket Force missileers. And it was shot, you know, partially uh, at some of those military bases, as far as we can see anyways. And so um, it's, it's quite fascinating. I'll leave its first episode in our show notes in case you're interested. Satellite imagery is just one piece of the puzzle, but its use has been expanding steadily among OSINT experts thanks to new commercial satellites in the field. I think people would be surprised to know how many satellite imagery resources are free to access, um, which is pretty amazing, right? Like, you know, you have Google Earth, which is pretty unbelievable, right, in, in terms of its level of detail and, and you know, the, the types of images that you can see. The thing about Google Earth, though, is that it, you know, it scrapes imagery from a lot of different providers and the imagery that gets put up there is not, it's not happening on like a daily basis or anything like that. And so that's where some other companies, for example, um, Planet, you know, which is a really big player in this space now, has stepped in to try and do this kind of daily uh, imaging of pretty much the entire Earth. And it's amazing, right? Like they, they really have opened up I think in entirely new fields of study by by providing researchers with access to that data. But on the most part, uh, for the most part, the majority of what we use is, is freely available to the public. But geospatial imagery doesn't provide a constant stream of information. So a satellite image is a, a view of a specific place at a point in time. This is Dave Schmerler. He's a senior research associate at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, which is where Decker also works. Dave primarily focuses on piecing together information on the North Korean nuclear arsenal through satellite imagery. So you only get like a snapshot um, and we can only interpret the uh, differences between snapshots that aren't as frequent. And satellites are now, there, there are now more satellite signatures, so we're getting more frequent images of locations and we're able to piece together more information. There, there, are, there are always gaps uh, because of just like the night-day night cycle uh, and then the amount of uh, overpasses a satellite has on a physical location. And then there's weather too. We don't have a reliable schedule on when we're going to get uh, necessarily like actionable imagery, but there are certain places where we have, you know, a, a more persistent schedule where we know, you know, we're, we're going to get a certain number of images per week. So most non-governmental organizations that use OSINT are using limited, publicly available information and then relying on prior knowledge to assess what's happening during these gaps between images. This isn't always the case for every organization, especially ones that are part of the United Nations. It is a very big difference in the level uh, and the, the scale, the scope, but also the mandate. This is Marcy Fowler. She's the Research and Analysis Manager for Open Nuclear Network, 
a program of One Earth Future that focuses on nuclear risk reduction. Before that, she spent around a decade working as an open source analyst at the International Atomic Energy Agency, or the IAEA. The International Atomic Energy Agency, as a verification organization, uses open source information in a different way. They use open source information as uh, one type of information, uh, and then they compare that to information that states declare to them uh, under their safeguards agreements. And they also then compare it to information that they collect in on-site um, inspections in the field, which is a key uh, item that my organization and civil society generally doesn't have access to. Both types of organizations have their own unique challenges when processing data. It has been uh, a very interesting challenge going from a larger organization uh, such as the IAEA to a smaller organization such as Open Nuclear Network uh, because we are a new organization and we are uh, much smaller. And so what that means is we can try things out, we can try new technologies a bit more quickly uh, that said, of course, um, we are limited in that we're a very small team. We have a, an analyst team of a handful of people, whereas the IAEA in safeguards, they have hundreds of people of analysts, of inspectors who are working uh, on that mission. Despite these limitations, OSINT analysis in civil society is incredibly powerful. There are multiple reasons why relying on government intelligence alone just doesn't cut it. For Dave... It's about transparency. Having this type of capacity on the um, non-governmental side, non-intelligence community side, allows the public uh, the ability to grapple with and uh, kind of interact with the changes that are happening around the world uh, as they happen. So we don't necessarily rely on like a, a spokesperson or a elected official to tell you the truth as he was uh, interpreting it. And for Decker, it's about filling in the gaps between public information and classified information. The United States classification system is Byzantine. We can independently verify a lot of things that the United States intelligence community can't really publish because um, it could compromise sources and methods um, or for a variety of other reasons. Let me clarify Decker's point and explain why this is so important. Governments can hesitate to make public what they know. When a government publicly verifies information, it can expose intel sources and methods, which can risk enemies catching on to the technology they have, compromise their intel sources to render them unusable, and risk lives. Governments can try to avoid all that by making an unsubstantiated statement, but saying you know something without showing how you know it is pretty unconvincing. So civil society and OSINT pose a tangible benefit here. Governments get to keep their own intelligence methods secret and usable for another day, the information comes from an unbiased source, and since it's open intelligence, the verification methods are public. It's a win-win situation. And that's not the only win governments get from the greater transparency civil society provides, according to Matt. It's perfectly advisable for countries to want to keep certain information about their nuclear weapons secret, right? And specifically, like, details about how to build them or, you know, access them. That being said, not all information about nuclear weapons should be kept secret. And I think in recent years, we are seeing that nuclear armed states have increasingly and unnecessarily been withholding um, critical details about their nuclear arsenals from their publics, 
from their allies and from their adversaries, which is also important. Um, and I think this is a problem for a few reasons, right? One of them is that ambiguity about nuclear stockpiles and deployments and when nuclear weapons would actually be used can lead to a lot of worst case assumptions about how those countries are going to develop or use nuclear weapons in the future. So this has the potential to you know, make the arms race a lot worse. Um, it increases the possibility of miscalculation. Um, and that's particularly true at a time of heightened nuclear tensions. Another thing is that you know, policies of excessive secrecy, there are arguments out there that suggest that you know, the United States should you know, keep its uh, data about nuclear weapons secret because you know, countries like Russia and China do it too. But the US you know, used to be a lot more transparent about its nuclear policies, especially you know, under the Obama administration. Um, and there weren't any really adverse national security effects um, with regards to nuclear weapons. And in fact, doing so actually improved the United States' nuclear image on the international stage because it was able to demonstrate to other countries that it was setting a higher bar and a higher standard for nuclear transparency. And so with all those things in mind, when we think about our work, we try very much to inject as much factual information into the debate as possible and, and to pull back the curtain on some of the secrecy. Battling against secrecy is a crucial factor here. OSINT helps democratize information and bring the public into a realm that can feel out of reach because of rampant overclassification and jargon-filled rhetoric. However, democratization of information comes with its own caveats. The main risk of the openness of information is the risks of quality of information. Open source information um, and also some of the tools um, that are being used in open source information in AI these can all be misused in various ways, including in disinformation campaigns. And it's very hard, it's very hard for an expert sometimes to identify disinformation. And so it would be nearly impossible to expect a member of the public to be able to identify which highly technical, highly complicated piece of information is true and, and which is not uh, in some of these disinformation campaigns that we've seen. That is one real risk. And it's also a challenge for civil society to amplify the good information. During the Beirut port explosion, you know, a couple of years ago, it was a huge tragedy because the, I guess a camera caught, you know, an explosion that sort of, it sort of resembled a mushroom cloud. And mushroom clouds can occur in all sorts of explosions. They don't have to be related to nuclear weapons, but then, you know, some really high profile accounts, you know, retweeted it and they were like, this is a nuke, right? And someone just nuked Lebanon, right? So it's like, this is clearly incorrect. But like, we've seen that because there's, there has been this sort of democratization of, you know, access to uh, satellite imagery and, you know, news reports and things like that, you sometimes do get a lot of misinformation that, that sort of comes with the territory. And so I guess as a field, we need to be thinking a little bit more. And I think there are already some folks who are doing a great job of this, of thinking about thinking through the ethics of the work that we do and how to more accurately communicate our findings to the media and to the public. In a field where many people are self-taught, it can be a tough task to regulate a standard code of ethics. Luckily, OSINT experts like Marcy aren't shying away from the responsibility. 
at uh, Open Nuclear Network, we've actually worked on establishing uh, codes of ethics in open source analysis. And it is important because there are real ethical considerations that any organization would face when using open source information. Um, for example, you know, principles of ethics like do no uh, harm principles. Uh, you may publish information that may actually do more harm than good. In some cases, when working with and other organizations, when working with sources who should not be identified, whose safety may be at risk, if you uh, identify the source, for example, there's an ethical challenge there. Uh, but there's also ethical challenges of if you were to identify a let's see, a covert activity or a nuclear facility uh, that was previously unknown, you have to understand that there are considerations for the safety and security of those humans involved, for example. These are real considerations in open source information and um, considerations that should not be taken lightly. The pros of democratization are self-evident, though especially when it comes to a field like non-proliferation. Generally speaking, this field has been, you know, largely the area of classified information. And classified information stays behind closed doors, or at least it's generally supposed to stay behind closed doors. But one of the roles of civil society in, in nuclear risk reduction is democratizing information, uh, making information available and leveling the information playing field not only among people, but also among countries, because not all countries have access to high, highly credible, high quality information about nuclear risks. Public needs to know if it's something that, you know, is in the public interest um, and it's how, you know, their people's money is being spent. It's useful, right, for people to understand how nuclear policies are shifting around the world, uh, because at the end of the day, if nuclear war ever happens, it's going to affect everyone on the planet. And so it's, it's really important that people understand um, these, these different little shifts that are happening in policy. Exposing people to the, the way we interact with information is uh, important. It's like learning how to do any other sort of skill at critical thinking. In that last clip, Dave is specifically referring to Geo for Nonpro a project he worked on at the James Barton Center, often called CNS, from 2016 to 2020. Aimed at democratizing information, it united geospatial hobbyists, experts, and novices to look at satellite imagery and learn from expert input how these images are analyzed. It's also the reason Decker entered the OSINT game and began learning from OSINT and nuclear expert Jeffrey Lewis. Decker explains. CNS some years ago had a program called Geo for Nonpro. And uh, Geo for Nonpro was a program that was experimenting with the idea of efficiently crowdsourcing large data sets by giving the internet a task to do and, and going out and having the internet you know, do that task. Um, so I followed along, and this, uh, as it turns out, I'm, I'm very, very good at this. And they had a competition at one point to find as many berms as possible. And I won that competition, and they started inviting me to do some things. And later on, Jeffrey was like, you know, you're really good at this. Why don't you do more of this? Come work for me. And that's sort of how I got recruited out of undergraduate to do this and invited to the fellowship program. We had one in the summer of 2020. And now I'm here in Monterey working in person. Sources outside of the traditional non-proliferation field can also have some startling insights. 
one of the um, more famous examples from Melissa. That's Melissa Ulam, now a senior advisor at the State Department's Bureau of Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance, but formerly a senior research associate at the James Martin Center. Uh, was that she was looking at a um, facility in North Korea and she was wondering how something operated and her cousin, I believe, was a truck driver and he understood how you move trucks inside of like large buildings and how it doesn't make sense unless you understand what casters are. So talking to someone who had no experience doing open source research or interpreting satellite imagery was for the question Melissa was trying to answer more useful than all of the combined nerd brains in the field. There are still potential uses for OSINT that haven't been implemented quite yet, according to Matt. I mentioned this like potential AI component. Like it would, it would be interesting to see if there was some application that that could, you know, in which researchers would be able to um, sort of collaborate with with more automated models in order to, I guess, get delivered, you know, a series of images that match a set of signatures and then use your eyes to be able to determine if that's correct or not and then see if that model can continue to learn and iterate. Lucky for Matt, the field of OSINT, particularly intelligence gathering with satellite images, is changing rapidly. Marcy's already working on integrating open source work with AI. So ONN will soon be launching our Korean Peninsula Analysis Center, and this is really uh, the optimal next generation of open source analysis, including technology in the way that augments and enhances the analysts. Um, the Korean Peninsula Analysis Center utilizes computer automation of information collection and AI-assisted information classification to support analysts in their monitoring of developments related to nuclear risk reduction. Here's the thing. OSINT is already a pretty powerful tool in the right hands, but more and more useful technologies are becoming available to civil society, and the possibilities are endless in Dave's eyes. So Planet Labs is launching a satellite called, I think, Tanager, and they're going to be doing uh, hyperspectral satellite imagery. So instead of like your visual bands, like three or four, Planet Labs is going to offer a couple hundred bands of... Um, satellite imagery that's not necessarily reflective of things that you see, but it can give you information. For example, you can fly a satellite over a, a farm and you don't know what type of crop it is, but with hyperspectral, you could. You could identify the spectral uh, signature for uh, corn versus soy versus anything else and pick out what type of uh, crops they're growing. For, for my interest, I'm interested in like North Korean mining. So if the North Koreans are mining something, like what, what are they mining? Is it black? Maybe it's coal. So I think that's the next big one. And then the other one that's coming out uh, right now uh, versus what's coming out next year and the year after is a synthetic aperture radar, which is just the coolest thing ever. It's like um, uh, sci-fi vision. It's uh, satellite imagery without light. It takes satellite images at nighttime. Uh, you can see through clouds. It's, it takes a bit of getting used to looking at an image that isn't taken with light, but the applications there are, are huge and it's becoming infinitely more uh, accessible and financially uh, from like a researcher perspective, like it's now a thing that we can afford. This is the key point. This technology and others like it are already being used in government satellite imagery. But with more private satellites jumping into the field of hyperspectral satellite imagery and synthetic aperture radar, abbreviated as SAR, civil society can now analyze this data too. With more eyes watching, Decker thinks governments may have to respond. So there's a bit of a relationship between the things that we can see and the things that governments do. 
So governments can do things sometimes because they don't want people like me to come along and, and see something. They'll um, hide things or move things around. And so we have to be careful about the data sources we have access to possibly affecting state behavior. For, for example, there's this hilarious case study. Uh, in North Korea, they have a equivalent of Google Maps. It's called uh, Naver Maps. And in, in South Korea, they have this law. And it says, well, it's, it's illegal to reveal the locations of military units. But if, if you're basically Google Maps, like how do, you, how do you legally solve that problem? Your job is to inform people of where things are. And so what they have done is that Naver Maps has, and this, this is hilarious, um, they have gone and they have put digital fake trees over every single missile base in South Korea. Now, this is actually great for us because anytime we look at an object and think, well, that might be a missile base or that might be a military base, I can just go to Naver Maps. And if it's covered in fake trees, I know it's confirmed that it's a military base. So there's this relationship about how states do counterintelligence. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's very unsuccessful, and we can sometimes use those counterintelligence methods actually to do our job. Some attempts to manipulate visual information can cause the Streisand effect, or basically draw more eyes to what you're trying to hide. But that's not always the case, especially since governments aren't the only actors who can access imagery. Matt explains. I expect that it's only a matter of time before we see the kind of mass proliferation of a lot of uh, manipulated satellite imagery, whether that comes from just kind of bad actors uh, who want to cause confusion or um, whether it comes directly from national governments, which I would also not be surprised by. I don't think it's particularly difficult to to, uh, manipulate satellite imagery. I think AI will make that a lot easier. There was a case, you know, even like several years ago, when Hans, you know, here at FAS, um, purchased an image from a satellite imagery provider that I believe was based in the Netherlands. And because it was an image of the Dutch airbase where U.S. nuclear weapons are presumed to be deployed at, they effectively falsified the image. And it was not that obvious that they had done it. You know, it wasn't like a really obvious pixelation. It was like they replaced part of the base with a farm that looked relatively realistic and then sent it to him. It was clear to him that it was falsified because he knows what the base looks like and knew that there was a part missing, but a lot of other folks might not know that. And so we're seeing that like, this is a practice that governments are not afraid to employ. And unfortunately, a lot of those cases are coming from a lot of like more Western governments that you would not expect to do those types of things. Um, And yet they're doing it anyways. And so I would expect that, uh, I, I would not be surprised at all if we saw like all governments start to do this in the future, I think it would be a really bad road to go down. Um, I think it would lead to a huge loss of trust um, between citizens and their governments. But it's not all doom and gloom. Dave thinks that the future of OSINT could also bring us new methods of verification for treaties and agreements on non-proliferation, which is direly needed in times of tension. If you have ability to leverage commercially available open source information to conduct these uh, verification activities, it's easier to, to use and disseminate and to get a point across to like the public, for example. So if a violation happens, it's not just like a, we saw a violation and that's the end of, of the comment. It's like, here's the violation. Uh, here's a publicly accessible way of identifying and seeing that violation. And uh, that might be um, uh, a role that this type of uh, work takes in the future.
Besides the IAEA, other international organizations have already jumped on the OSINT train. And the IAEA is not the only verification organization that is currently using open source information. Uh, the UN Panel of Experts on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea Sanctions Committee also uses open source information uh, primarily to, to identify information on sanctions compliance. Also, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has just in the last few years started using open source information. Uh, I, I recently read about their use of open source in investigating incidents uh, that the OPCW fact-finding mission had identified where chemical weapons had been likely used in Syria. And the potential opportunities for OSINT as a verification method only keep expanding. For example, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, open source information could assist them in their preparation for in-field verification activities. Also, the Biological Weapons Convention, I have read uh, ideas on how open source information could be used as an alternative information gathering approach since it lacks a formal monitoring mechanism. So perhaps in that case, open source could be used while other verification could not be. Marcy and the Open Nuclear Network have been actively involved in how to bring more open source intelligence into verification. At Open Nuclear Network, we have also been looking at how open source information could have a role in verifying future arms control treaties. So we've been cooperating with the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, or UNIDIR, to investigate how commercial satellite imagery could support on-site inspections as a part of a project where we are testing practical procedures for verifying the absence of nuclear warheads at active military sites. And this exercise has already shown that even something as sensitive as verifying arms reductions and disarmament, there is a role that open source information can play. As new technologies enter the civil sector, analysts will be able to deliver new information on worldwide nuclear arsenals faster than governments can keep up with. OSINT in civil society is poised to change not only how governments conduct operations around their nuclear arsenal, but also how civilians interact with the secretive world of nuclear weapons. The future of non-proliferation through OSINT shines bright, with new methods for transparency to help us hold governments accountable. Although use of such technology will not by itself eliminate nuclear threats, it could prove a valuable tool in managing them. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Marcy, Dave, Matt, and Decker for lending me their expertise for this episode. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. This episode was produced and hosted by Farah Sande. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nukesofhazard. That's at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. And on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.